ladies. Welcome to Le Vital Core Salon, the virtual lounge for frazzled type A women, imposters, and overscheduling addicts. I'm your host and salonier, Kara Martin Snyder. And each episode, my job is to introduce you to a modern woman leaving their unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout slow them down. 45% of New Year's resolutionists who want to make this really awesome change in their life have already failed. And as a health and lifestyle strategist who's worked for seven years privately counseling women around diet, rest, exercise, stress, and social relationships, this is particularly heartbreaking for me. And so if this is something you've been struggling with and you really want this year to be different and you really want to have a foundational, healthy springboard for which you can jump into life from, then let's talk. You can check out my website. It's vitalcorewellness.com and core is C-O-R-P-S, like the Army Corps of Engineers, except women and cooler. And there's a contact button and you hit it and there's a couple questions that you can answer And it'll pop right into my email box and we can connect from there and consider if a smart start session would be a good fit for you. I just want to say that I'm a really lucky lady. And what I mean by that is because I have sort of a virtual office, which is basically a laptop and a microphone and some headphones and some cords that all fit into a backpack, I have the extreme privilege to get to sometimes tag along when my husband goes to music conferences in some of my favorite cities. And Montreal is one of my favorite cities in the entire universe. And Craig was speaking at M Pour Montreal in, I think it was back in November, and came away from one of the sessions saying that I had to meet this woman, Beth. And over the course of the next couple of days, he repeated that. And we kept trying to crisscross paths and and whatnot. And everyone's coming and going, and it and it's often hard. And I think on the the last day or the second to last day, I finally got to meet today's guest, Beth Martinez, in the lobby of the hotel. And from the moment we first met and exchanged about fifteen of our favorite book references and things like that, I realized I wanted to have her on the show. And so today's guest, Beth Martinez, is the publicist and owner at Danger Village Music Publicity and based out of L.A. And she works with a lot of new bands. And we'll talk about music a little bit. But Beth really opens up and shares about an experience involving sexual harassment and how it made its way to Twitter and what's happened in the year since. And... Really, throughout this entire episode, just brings such an air of positivity and of being introspective and shares some of the self-inquiry that she does and what helps make her the well-respected, really grounded, hardworking, hustling, successful woman that she is. And so I could probably blather on about her for like 10 more minutes. Instead, I'm just going to take us over to the interview. Hi, Beth. How are you? Welcome to the Vital Core Salon. Hi, I'm good. Thank you for having me. So, Beth, these days you're the owner of Danger Village Music Publicity. Mm-hmm. Is, 
Was music PR something you always knew you wanted to do, or did it evolve? It evolved. My um, story was that I went into college, kind of wanted to be a social worker, and then I wanted to be a journalist. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and then I joined a music promotions group called Star Course at my school, which was the University of Illinois in Champaign. My first show I worked was Tiffany's Comeback Tour, and I did merch. And their tour manager asked me to go on tour with them and do merch for Tiffany. And um, I declined. But <laughs> I, <laughs> I uh, from that moment, it was like, this is what I want to do with my life. It, it just like, I think I was very lucky at like 18 or very early into me, 19, I, I knew what I wanted to do. Music PR was not something I was aware of until a few years later. Um, it seemed like a long time later. Now it doesn't seem like a long time. So I did a bunch of internships at booking agencies and um, a radio station, and I stayed in Star Course throughout school and became a publicity manager. And then after, after school, I um, interned at a label in Chicago, whose name escapes me right now, unfortunately, because it was a really like cool label that was uh, working out of like a warehouse with like all the... It was so dirty and gross and like all the other rooms were filled with like musicians and it was just like a really cool place. Um, the owner of that label said to me that I should be a publicist and I'm like, what is that? And he's like, just take this song and email blogs and ask blogs to write about it. And I was kind of like, what's a blog? And, <laughs> um, and then, I mean, cause that was what I graduated college in 2004. So that was earlier on in like blog time. Yeah. Um, right before like the heyday of like, you know, my old Kentucky blog and Stereogum and Gorilla versus Bear, like right before those blogs kind of blew up. And like the week later or that weekend or something, I went to visit my friends who were in a band in Champaign. We were talking and they were like, you should be a publicist. And I was like, why do people keep saying that? And they're like, this is what you do. We're going on tour. Take our posters and our bio and put them in a package and send them to these places, you know, these uh, newspapers in different tour stops and ask them to write about us. And that's how you're a publicist. So I just started doing that. <laughs> Do you think they saw any skills that you possessed or there were like natural talents that, that you were yeah. calling on? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. My friend who was in the band, we were roommates in, in college and I would do events for Star Course and I would just come up with ideas like, we should do this and we should do this and we should do this. And she would just sit there and be like, whoa, like, how did you just come up with all those ideas? <laughs> so, yeah, I think a lot of people did see that potential in me. I remember I, I was, uh, I, I interned at XRT in Chicago, which is a really cool radio station. And later on, I ran into my old boss and, you know, he, it was after college. He was like, oh, so what do you want to do? And I'm like, I want to be a, a publicity, you know, I want to be a publicist for a record label. And he was like, well, how are you going to do that? And then before I answered, he was like, because you're Beth Martinez and you make things happen. <laughs> <I was like, laughs> that's like truly been like my mantra for my life. And like, I wrote a book and that's like what the character always says too. I always think like, I'm Beth Martinez. I make things happen because he said that like at a flaming lips, white stripes, show, you know, 15 years ago. So yeah, I think people were able to kind of recognize that. And that's why they uh, were able to point that out to me. So I just kind of taught myself how to do it. And then um, 
that band who I was friends with was talking to a record label in Chicago called Minty Fresh, and they introduced me to them, and Minty Fresh hired me. And I worked there for a little more than a year, and then I left to start Danger Village, which was 10 years ago this month. Whoa! Congratulations, Beth. Thanks. (laughs) That's a big milestone. I know. It came up so fast. I need to, like, figure out how I'm going to celebrate that. I don't know yet. That was my very next question. Like, how are you going to celebrate? Because it's so easy as entrepreneurs to kind of just be like, yep, another year down, and you keep going. But you don't really stop to be like, yes, this is 10 years. Yeah, and it's 10 years of, like, when I started was 2007, and then 2008, there there was that, you know, the, the housing bubble crash. And all these people who had been hiring me as, like, because it was their part-time, there was, like, their side project. People were hiring me to promote their band, and they had extra money. That money just dried up. And I had to, like, lower my prices and really start going after bands. It really changed, like, the whole way I was doing business. But I had to start going after better bands, which I actually think, you know, made Danger Village a lot more respectable. But, yeah, I, I don't. I'm planning a site relaunch, but I'm not really, um, there will be a site relaunch and I'll probably do some sort of event. It won't be this month, but there'll be something to mark the, the 10th year. Very cool. Very cool. It's funny. You were talking about how you had to hustle more after 2008, But listening to your story, what I heard as one of your strengths is this kind of scrappiness, which Mm -hmm. makes my inner scrappy goddess smile. (laughs) Do you see a difference between that kind of scrappiness and the kind of hustle you're talking about having to sort of chase down clients? Or do you see that as the same thing? I I see them as complementary to each other. So I I feel like hustle is going out selling yourself, really being able to tell people why they should hire you. And scrappiness, I think, is more... Okay, this, first of all, I have not, like, in my mind ever defined scrappiness before, but... (laughs) (laughs) I I won't judge. Listeners, no judging. (laughs) But, like, what I think of is um, being able to turn on a dime, basically. Like, being able to take the punches and get back up. And, like, being able to lose clients... And be like, there's a, there's going to be another client. And to be able to just keep fighting for what you know you can do and fighting for yourself, even when no one else believes in you or that it just doesn't, it, it looks very dark, you know? Do you have a different way of, or do you have other scrappiness attributes that you think go there? I think what you said about being able to turn on a dime is kind of how I think about it. And also just being really resourceful, like knowing that you're at A and want to get to B and that sometimes the path in between is blocked. So figuring out like, okay, I need to go around this way or I need to reverse turn and then go this other way. That's kind of how I think of, of scrappiness. Um, yeah. And and I would agree with your, your definition of hustle. They feel different to me. And it yeah. sounded different when you were talking about it. Hustle is something that's hard for a lot of women, and especially mm-hmm. a lot of female entrepreneurs. For people listening that are struggling with getting out there to hustle, 
what has worked well for you or what has made that easier for you? <laughs> I'm kind of nervous even answering this question because I feel it like it's such an important question and such an important thing to guide people in the right direction on because it is something that I personally have probably the biggest problem with is being able to convince people um, that I am the person they want to work with because I am not someone who can go out there and be like, Hey man, I'm going to make you a star. You know, (laughs) I feel like I I need a shower just hearing you say that. (laughs) But that's how like most people, it seems, it seems in a lot of ways, a lot of other publicists or certain other publicity firms who have had a lot of success. I feel like they're really good at bullshit and I'm not good at bullshit like in any way like all I can do is go out and be just be the best me I can be and and that I believe will make the people that I want to work with want to work with me and um the way I got to that kind of conclusion is you know it's been many years 10 years of of really clearly defining to myself who I am and being very strong in knowing that and being able to kind of speak the only phrase that comes to mind is speak my truth like just be very very honest about what my goals are what my goals are for your artist where I see that I can get them and that if you hire me you're getting the absolute best publicist in the world I mean I truly believe that I truly believe that I am the best music publicist for new musicians in the world you know, I, I think that confidence is what makes me successful. I do think that I don't get certain clients because I'm not, um, I'm not able to lie about things. Like I'm not going to tell someone I'm going to get them on a late night television show if they're not at the point that I'm going to get them on a late night television show. And so I think a lot of, particularly the major labels want to hire, um, they, if they're going to spend you know, a large amount of money on a publicist, they want to hear that they're going to get them all this stuff, even if it's not true, weirdly. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just what they want to hear. They want to hear that confidence. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie to people about it. So. so setting reasonable and realistic expectations with people is something really important to you? Um, yes, yes. Because I can't, I can't handle people coming to me and being like, you said you're going to do this and this didn't happen because then I feel terrible. Plus it's just like so annoying to deal with people coming at you all the time being disappointed. I shouldn't say annoying. That's not the right word. It's just, it's frustrating. Um, so I have to set realistic expectations. I, I don't know how other people don't do that. Like, I don't know how other people handle like, like them coming there's, cause there's a lot of other PR companies that like don't follow through on their promises and I don't know how they can just handle that. But I, that's not like my, moral code or whatever. So my advice really is for your listeners is really to, um, and, and not just for this, but for everything in life, like just really being very, very clear on who you are as a person and what your values are and like what you can do and, and doing everything you can to, um, be very confident with yourself because each person has unique 
qualifications and strengths and appreciating your, your personal strengths is what makes other people appreciate them about you. So no one's going to be able to see that about you unless you see it in yourself. So whatever it takes to get that like ultimate confidence in yourself is what's going to show that to the, to anyone you're looking to work with. Does that make sense? It does to me, and I'm sure it'll resonate really well with people listening. I think I want to back up and celebrate the way you just owned your confidence at the beginning of, of this part of the interview. It's not very often that I hear a woman express that kind of confidence right up front. So that's really impressive. Thank you for modeling that for everyone listening. You're welcome. Like, to be honest, like, I, now I don't notice it, but before, like, if I had done this interview a year ago, I would have kind of been like, can I say that, you know? <laughs> but now I'm like, no, I am. I am. I am. That's it. Like, there's just no, I just know that about myself. And um, I do think women really don't own their power enough. They don't own their awesomeness enough. There's many reasons for it. You can see when someone like Beyonce or, or whomever, like, you know, does something amazing. So many people attack her for it. And it's, so it's a hard thing to do. And I've experienced that. But the more confident you are, the more you don't care. <laughs> yeah. When your self-esteem is bedrock for you, it's easy to weather that kind of criticism. It's easy to weather those kind of situations. But Beth, I have a I have a different question for you. When, if ever, have you most felt like an imposter? And how did it Im- impact you? You know, very much early on in my career. So in my early 20s, I would go to South by Southwest. And maybe the first or second year I would go to South by Southwest and not to sound like to get off my lawn, but South by Southwest was like a very different, cool place than, than it is now. (laughs) (laughs) So I hear, so I hear. It was so hip. And, and what I really remember was going to, I was was friends with someone who worked at Vice and I would go to these Vice after parties and I just felt like I was pretending, even though I was like a total hipster, I like only wore vintage clothes and worked at a record label or whatever um I didn't feel like I I fit in there and I would go to shows in Chicago and I just didn't feel like I fit in and um yeah I I'm try- I don't really have any examples of like working with clients where I felt like an imposter because I always felt like I was pretty clear about being upfront about like my skills but yeah, I would go to like South by Southwest or like CMJ or whatever, and I would try to introduce myself to like these radio people or, um, you know, music journalists. And I, and I felt like I shouldn't be there. I felt like I wasn't cool enough or um, hip enough or I didn't have the musical knowledge. A lot of times in the music industry, people will make you feel bad for, for not knowing like, oh, you don't know broken social scenes B-sides that they recorded. <laughs> Like you just like, you know, it's like that where, but it's now like thinking back, it was always other people putting their insecurities on me. Cause when someone's like, when someone's like, you don't know that that's their insecurity 
trying to feel better about themselves because they know a piece of information that you you don't know. So in hindsight, all the times I felt like maybe like an imposter were not were not really times I needed to feel that way. But if I had been stronger in my self-esteem and being like, yeah, I need to be here, like this is where I'm supposed to be, that I wouldn't have had those issues. Because it's not like, like I still go to shows and people still say things like that to me, but I'm not like feeling bad about myself. I'm just like, oh yeah, that sucks for you. I'm sorry, like that you have to be that way. <laughs> like, uh, but you know, like I don't think this is like what you meant by the question, but that's just what came to mind. Yeah, um, and I, what I'm also hearing is the recognition that sometimes it's other people's stuff. Like a lot of times we take things so personally, it's not ours to carry right? Like, it's their problem. It's their insecurity. Like, okay, so you know this fact. Great, it might get you on Jeopardy, but it's it's not really making or breaking my day. Good luck with it. Right. Yeah, almost always when someone makes you feel bad, it's because they feel bad. Like, I have had to learn that lesson so many times, and I probably will continue to learn that, where if you feel depressed after coming away from a conversation with someone, that's probably not on you. That's on them making you feel bad because they feel bad about themselves. So I just like more and more, I'm just avoiding people I know who bring me down like that. Not um, to like criticize or judge those people because everyone has, because I'm, because I'm sure even I used to do that to people, you know, like I think I used to put people down. Actually, I know, I know I used to put people down because I felt bad about myself. And, you know, I didn't like this confidence thing is not a thing I was really, um, I had growing up, like I had very low self-esteem until maybe five years ago. And then I just decided to, uh, to change that. And and it's a, it's a thing I work on every single day. Amen. (laughs) Amen. We're constantly evolving as women. What do you think has helped you boost that confidence for yourself? Um, I know totally small question, right? I mean, I, I have so many things I do that boost my confidence that I've developed over the last five years. It started with yoga and, you know, then just taking care of myself. I had to quit drinking for years um, because drinking was ruining my life. I've evolved into just every day doing something that makes me feel good about myself. So I do yoga. I try my, you know, I try to go to yoga five times a week because that's something that clears out my mind and makes me feel really good about myself. I've gone back to running three times a week because that exercise, like cardio exercise, I I, I used to run a lot and then I, I quit for a few years, but now I've, I'm back to that because cardio exercise really, you know, helps you get your heart rate going and the endorphins and shed stuff right like I feel like when I run like stuff just burns off of me or like frazzly energy just is gone when I'm done yeah I almost like if there's something that's on my mind like I'm really angry at someone which happens often um (laughs) I (laughs) I get very very angry I have to go for when I go for a run I'm like I am going to use this run to get that anger out and then hopefully you know, usually by the end of it, I'm not as angry anymore. I do meditation every day. I write in my journal every day. I um, limit, 
I, I work really hard on not overextending myself because as an owner of two businesses and, um, you know, having a social life and having to go to shows and, and dinners, like I just, I have to say no a lot. Actually, I say no a lot to a lot of stuff. Um, even stuff that I want to go to, like younger Beth would be shocked at the stuff I turned down now because I, <laughs> <laughs> my, my most, like I, my most favorite thing is by example of that is like, I was invited to go to a intimate show with the Decemberists and I didn't go because it was raining and my boyfriend was making chili and like 10 years ago or whatever, I would be like, are you kidding? Like, that's your favorite band. <laughs> you know? And it's just like, uh, I just can't do everything. And sometimes you got to take care of yourself. <laughs> I'm laughing because I know Beth. Like I used to be at a lot of times I would get out of work I could catch a movie at MoMA at six, then maybe grab something to eat with friends, and then I could be at a show later that night. And now, like, when Craig comes to me with, hey, I have tickets to this show, it's always, what time is the set time? No, mm -hmm. really, what time is the set time? Will there be seats? <laughs> <laughs> I know, standing to watch a show now, it's so hard. <laughs> I'm 39. You'd think I was 200, but <laughs> but I can appreciate what you're talking about where you're just like, this isn't worth the toll of feeling exhausted, frazzled, you know, insert whatever negative adjectives you want to put there. How do you say no? Because this is something that acutely, like the frazzled type A women that I attract in my coaching practice and are probably attracting as listeners right now, saying no is so difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How did you get there to be able to say it without guilt? and Or, or maybe you do feel guilt. I'm going to stop assuming things and let you talk. Um, no, I don't. I don't feel guilt because I um, have gotten to a place. I'm trying, and I'm trying to think of where I, how I got here. But really, I um, I don't do things I don't want to do because I don't think you should do anything out of guilt or out of obligation. Because if you're doing things out of guilt or obligation, um, you're not doing it out of a generous heart or a uh, good spirit. So going to someone's birthday party that you don't want to go, you're bringing your negative energy into it. And there are examples where like, I mean, I almost never want to go to anything. But then once I get there, I'm like, oh, I'm really glad I came here, you know. So there are certain times where it's particular if it's like a very good friend. And I'm like, you know, I don't feel like going to this person's birthday, but I know I'm going to be glad I went. I'll do that. But if it's something where I'm like, oh, I should go to this mixer because you know so and so is going to be there and I need to put in a good face and blah 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 I've just learned that doing those networking things that kill me are just never worth the energy so I've just I've just paid attention to that like is the it's a, it's a uh you know a cost benefit analysis is the amount of energy you're putting in to going to this event that you don't want to go is it going to be worth the dividends that you get from it. Usually the answer is no, unless you're like, yes, I cannot wait to go to see all these people at this, you know, music industry party and see my friends, you know, like then it's like, fine, do that. But like what you really got to pay attention to is 
how do you feel about it? Are you going because you feel obligated to go? And if you feel obligated, I would say no. Don't don't do it and don't feel guilty about it because you got to take care of yourself. Especially don't like you don't need to go to things if you're sick because you need to t- you're when you're sick like that's it. Like your body is telling you to take a break and get better. I just I really I think that's how I got there just like reeling in the idea of like not doing anything out of guilt or or obligation and and trust me like I grew up in a catholic household <laughs> guilt is like the thing like you're not going to your cousin's wedding and I'm like well you know I'm not really close to that cousin and it's going to cost me a thousand dollars to go and no one's going to care if I'm there so like you know I just like that was a big one was like I moved to California from Chicago and I realized that Back when I lived in Chicago, I would make a lot of effort to go to certain family events. And for me, for them, it was like a 20-minute drive. For me, it was like three train rides and a cab or whatever. It was like a four-hour ordeal just to get there. And then if I was late or I didn't bring an appetizer, everyone was like, you're late. You didn't bring an appetizer. And I'm <laughs> I just like, but half a day getting here, you know? Like, I just realized that, like, I had to st- – now, and now I go to things, like, with a really happy spirit. Like, I'm – I go to less things, but I'm happy to be there. But as far as saying no to um, other obligations, like work obligations or whatever, like I imagine a lot of your listeners have, I, I don't have advice for like a, a like a regular job where like your boss is like, can you go to this and you don't want to because I don't work in that environment. But I do have an experience where I have a lot of people trying to hire me and I have to say no to maybe 90% of them. And, um, again, I'm just very honest with people in a way that I don't want to be unnecessarily mean, but usually what I say to people when I'm turning down clients is this isn't the right fit for our roster or, um, we, a lot, and a lot of times it's true. Like I already have a band that sounds like this, um, or I like it, but I don't think I can get press for you. You know, I, I try to be honest without hurting people's feelings. Like, I don't think that you need to be like mean to be honest you know I used to <laughs> but I don't do that anymore <laughs> well especially if you're like I grew up in a Catholic house too which is exactly why I interjected I know and you know with that I, I think there's that culture tends to reinforce the do what everyone's doing play nice play by the rules just be nice do what you're told that kind of spirit And that was something I had to break out of, too. Like, wait, I can say no to these things? Like, how does that work? What is this strange alternate universe I've moved to in New York City? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very freeing. It's very freeing to know that you're in charge of your schedule and no one else. And, like, you can't – you basically can't blame anyone else for anything because you choose what you do. So – uh, even like, even if you're resentful of your boss making you do things, like you don't actually have to have that job. You don't have to work there. You should go find something that you do like doing. Most people just don't do that out of fear or out of laziness. Yeah, and then it festers and builds. And I, I think what you were describing reminds me a, a lot about what I talk about with with my clients. In that, maybe it's because I was a CPA for so many years. Mm. thinking of energy as a bank account 
right? Like you have to make as many deposits as you do withdrawals. And so it sounds like when you're deciding about things, whether it's taking on a client, whether it's going to an event versus staying home and having chili, which sounds amazing, (laughs) you know that you're kind of doing that math. I think you use cost-benefit analysis when you were describing it, but it it really is. It's like, is the energy I'm going to spend getting there, being there, socializing with people, some of them who might not be my people, maybe even kind of some toxic people, you know, am I going to be energized by the people that make me feel really awesome that I'm going to run into there or have a good time or be in this beautiful scenery? Like all of those intangible things, like you have to kind of look at like, Am I going to come home with as much energy as I left with or more for doing this? Yes, absolutely. And I think that is such a great way to say it. It's like it's a bank account and it needs to be to your benefit because if you're depleted, you can't be of benefit to anyone else. So there's no point in in depleting your energy to the point that you feel too drained to, to do anything. What I've started doing and what I really like doing, but it just takes a lot more time. I like doing one-on-one conversations. Like I love stuff like this. I love going to lunches with people, which is a very LA thing. But (laughs) as long as you show up, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, sorry, uh, I got distracted by my laugh. (laughs) (laughs) It happens. It happens. So... You know, it's easy. I always, every year, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go find out when all the Christmas parties are, and I'm going to go to the Christmas parties, and I'm going to spend a few nights, like, knocking out, like, my hellos to everyone, and then, you know, I get into FaceTime, and every year I'm like, oh, I just can't deal with it, because I like people, but I don't like people in group settings, and because the energy in these networking events, or even certain parties, or just certain gatherings, it just, I I don't have a way to explain what happens, but it's like everyone kind of has to act a role within the group instead of kind of being themselves. So I find um, that when I do one-on-one lunches with people, I can really get to know people and, and almost everyone I can connect with on some level. I almost never come away from a one-on-one with someone not liking that person because I can always find some way to connect. And I'm even surprised about this up because this myself, because I used to be very judgmental and let me say, I still am working on not being judgmental, but like I, I used to see someone who, okay, I came from a very like hipster indie background and I would see a guy dressed like a frat guy and I'd be very judgmental and be like, Oh, that guy's probably a douchebag. And I've learned that. And judging what he probably listened to. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Being like, oh, he probably listens to... Creed. Know, Creed, <laughs> Nickelback, you know. And, like, now I realize, like, some of those people who dress the broiest have become the people I like the most. And um, particularly, like, one label guy I met with last year, I thought, just on seeing his picture and, and seeing my first impression of him, I was like, this is going to be, like, the biggest bro in the world. And he was the person I connected with most on like the future of the music industry in the past year. So, um, you know, I feel like, but if maybe if I had met him in a group setting, I would not have felt the same way. 
I usually opt out of big events and try to get, uh, and, and same with birthdays too. Like people invite me to their birthday parties and I'm kind of like, oh, I'm not going to be able to go, but can I buy you lunch for your birthday? You know, um, I just like to get to know people better on that level. I think I just went on a huge tangent with that. Sorry. <laughs> no, please don't apologize. And I, you can't see me because we're recording this with audio only, but I was shaking my head up and down like crazy. You know, I think everything you were saying could have come out of my mouth <laughs> these days. And I think people that know me have a strong expectation that I'm really extroverted. And I am, but I also need my downtime. Mm-hmm. And I have just realized over the last, I don't know, probably six, seven, eight years, it's it's been sort of increasing and, and changing. But recognizing the very same thing, I'd much rather go to dinner with two or three people and actually be able to take my time and hear what's going on with everyone than just talking about the weather or like this really surface chatter at parties. Mm-hmm. And I really have, have stopped. And I also just avoid the big birthday dinners or group dinners because they have you planted at this table where you can't even really move to speak to other people. So you might get to speak to one or two people, but then most of the time I leave and I have no voice at the end because I've been yelling over music and background noise to try to have this like conversation with someone and then just feel like I came home exhausted from that and managing all the energy and everything going on around me and trying to talk to people and having to yell. And then also, you know, you touched on it earlier, like not drinking. Mm. Over the last couple of years, I've been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. So I have really limited how much I drink and just don't get as much pleasure and enjoyment out of it. But I was finding every time I went to a group dinner, I was sort of socially unsatisfied. And then I was like, how did two tacos cost me $85? Like, how did that happen? (laughs) So really, I just hear like birthday dinner and I pretty much run for the hills. And I'm, I'm sort of terrified this year as I turn 40 and so do a lot of my close friends that I'm just going to have to like hide until next year. Oh man, yeah. You should do um, since you're in L or you're in New York. You should do birthday spa castle or spa. What's it called? The um, the Korean, yeah, spa castle. It's in Queens. Have you been there? No. All right, oh, I'm, I'm writing this down right now. This is gonna. This is the best thing ever. Have you ever been to a Korean spa? Because no. it can be a little first. Okay. Well, I first discovered this because it was my friend's bachelorette party, and she does. She's not. A, she doesn't drink. So like, we went to. Uh, Spa Castle in Queens, and um, it's, like, four levels of Korean spa. And the first level is all, like, like hot tubs, and the men and the women are separated, and it's all naked, which sounds weird at first, but you get used to it. And then there's, like, the third level, there's, like, saunas and food, and then the top level is adult water park. It's, like, all these jets and, yeah, different pools and, like, hot and cold, and it's, it's like, the best thing. So, like, if you want to do a group birthday that's such a good thing that you don't have like everyone can just pay for themselves which is like the my worst thing too about group birthdays it's like I didn't you know I don't drink my boyfriend really doesn't drink at dinner or anything so like and everyone else is ordering bottles of champagne and we're like really I don't want to split this with them. <laughs> <laughs> you know so yeah the drinking thing is such a important thing I think for mental health like I think I really don't know anyone who can really 
handle drinking and not get anxiety from it. I, I, I really enjoy a glass of white wine and maybe I enjoy gla- two glasses, but more than that, I just don't feel good. Um, yeah. At Christmas this year, my, what did I have? I had something really, it seemed innocuous, like a port, like a little tiny bit of port. And I had such a headache the next day and I'm like, this is not worth it. <laughs> like, I used to be able to drink so much and not, you know, once you, once you turn 30, it really, your body slows down. Like it, it really does. And hangovers are worse. And there are many, many, many reasons I don't drink. But the main reason I don't drink during the week at all is just like, I don't want to come to work and like snap at my employees and snap at clients because the day after drinking, I feel terrible and I want to be on top of things and I want to be a pleasant person to be around, you know, um, I want to think clearly. I totally get it. I want to be on my best as well. And it's just not worth the, also the mental sluggishness that I feel. Yeah. Beth, how do you navigate that? Because working in the industry that you work in, and, you know, I get to tag along with my husband, Craig, to South by Southwest and Montreal, which is where we met. You know, so I get to tag along and get invited to all of these things. And drinking is a big part of work in the music industry. I mean, it is in a lot of industries, but very much so in music. Um. The easiest way to navigate is to, and, and this is going to like, people are going to like, I know people will not like this, but the easiest way to navigate is to just not drink in music industry stuff. Like <laughs> it's just because there's so much free alcohol or like people are like, let's buy shots or, which is a very crazy immature thing to do. But like, <laughs> why do people do that? But like, um, but sorry, see, I'm still judgmental about stuff. <laughs> I, qu- um, I question shots too. I, I mean, I always have because you've seen me. I'm four foot eleven and like a hundred pounds. Like, really, how many shots does someone my size ever need to consider? Yeah, right. I, I had some incidences um, maybe four years ago where I got roofied, and I realized that like I had been roofied like at a music industry event uh, by someone in the industry, and like after that, I was kind of like, well, I can't ever drink at a music industry event again because. When you get drugged, you don't know you're drugged. So then you act like an asshole. Everyone thinks you're an asshole. They don't know. They just think you're like the drunk girl. And I was like, oh, this is like bringing down my business. This is really like hurting me. So I was like, I can't drink at any music industry events ever again. And then shortly after that, I realized that like I was an alcoholic and I needed to stop drinking completely. So I quit drinking for like two or three years completely. So that makes it easier. Now I only drink like in very like safe spaces like if I'm at a friend's house or like at you know our local bar and I'm with my boyfriend or like just if I at a family thing but I don't I don't ever drink anymore um at industry events or anything where like I could potentially get drugged again because uh roofing is unfortunately a part a thing that happens way too often <laughs> to like many people of all walks it, it, it's just not it that thing is not worth it so for me personally like South by is so much easier to do sober. It's so much easier to wake up without a hangover and go for a walk than to like try to do all those events after drinking, even while drinking. Cause like once you start drinking, like at two in the afternoon, like you have to keep on, like you can't like start at two 
end at four and then just go out to shows at night. Like if you do that, you have to go to bed, you know? Yeah, I was going to say a night like that, I would be at the hotel room by about 8.30 p.m. (laughs) Totally, totally. I think of Montreal, I did have a couple glasses of wine at at a dinner one night. But yeah, I didn't feel good the next day. So yeah, um, at like at like the mixers and stuff at of Montreal, I wasn't drinking. Or if I I'm like sometimes I'll get a glass of wine and maybe have a sip of it, but not really drink it. Like if it's free or something. But I really um, people don't notice you not drinking as much as you think they will. And if people are pressuring you to drink, it's usually because they're insecure about how much they're drinking. So. It just hasn't been that big of a problem to just not drink at all at this stuff um, or at work functions. I personally think if you're trying to get ahead professionally, don't drink. Like, I maybe that's not the best advice for New York, like bankers or something. But no, um, I, I think from my experience, drinking only added to problems as well. I mean, you know, I remember going to... I think it was somebody's going away party and everyone has a few too many drinks. And I remember a a manager of mine who lived in my same neighborhood, we shared a cab. And then it was like when it pulled up in front of my apartment, he tried getting out. He was like putting his hands between my legs and just, you know, nobody needs that. And if all of us just had gone to dinner or hadn't been drinking, like, people wouldn't be in those situations or it it would happen less so. I mean, there are still total slime balls and sleaze balls that would still put their hands on women, but something about adding drinking is just kind of like pouring gasoline on the situation. Right, right. And if you're even if you're like boss or whoever is drunk and you're completely sober, you're able to navigate much better and not question yourself the next day like, did I do anything to like invite that or was I giving him the wrong singles? When you're sober, you're like, oh, no, I was completely sober and that guy was drunk. I can see that clearly. Because I know that there's a perception, and I think it's a very false perception that in business, you know, in music or finance or whatever, that you need to, like, kind of hang, party, hang with the big boys. And, like, as a woman, that's not why we're not getting invited to the table. It's not because we're not smoking cigars and drinking brandy after dinner in the men's room. Like we're not getting invited to the table because of misogyny. That's it. Like we're not getting invited to the table because men uh, don't, and a lot of women don't think that women deserve to be paid the same as men or that they can do as good a jobs or they just, you know, I don't have all the reasons this happens, but we're just, uh, it's not because like we're not doing enough shots with them. It's because they see us as objects. And when you, if you, if you're a woman trying to like be in a man's world and like keep up with them drinking, a you're not going to be able to because men handle alcohol way better than women. Two, they just want to sleep with you. And like I used to not think this, and now I realize they see us as objects. Like they just see us as like as people to have sex with instead of someone who can bring good ideas to the table and who can be really fucking awesome at their jobs. So like, I think that instead of trying to um, fit in, in the man's world by doing the shots or partying or doing whatever we, what we need to do is just really create the woman's world where we don't need to do all that stuff to prove our, to like bang on our chest. We can just do a fucking kick-ass job and 
just prove ourselves that way and take over the world that way. I just really went on a long feminist rant there. I don't know where that came from, but. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you did. And I think, so Beth, when I was sort of stalking you and getting ready for this interview, I noticed your Twitter, like your name on Twitter is Beth Martinez, period, hero, period. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, hearing you just talk about the objectification of women, it's something you truly understand. And hero, like you are very much that to me. And I think you are to a lot of other women. And specifically what I'm talking about is how you, along with Amber Kaufman of Dirty Projectors and several other women, went public about a year ago with your shared and common experiences of being sexually assaulted assaulted by the same man. Do you mind sharing a little bit of that context and kind of how that's changed things for you, if it has? Sure, yeah. Um, Well, I put that hero on there. I don't even know why. I just did. Like, I think it was a, um, now I would call it like a positive affirmation. I don't know what I would call it back then, but I think I was like, I was aspiring to be that. So I was like, Beth Martinez, hero. I think it was from drive or something I thought it was funny so that was years I put that on there years ago and then um yeah so I mentioned earlier that I realized that I had been roofied by someone in the music industry and um that was that guy um who Amber years later was tweeting about that this guy I mean do you is it okay if I say his name or yeah I mean it's it's out there anyone can go to Twitter and find it So what happened was I own a PR company and this guy Heathcliff had started his own PR company. I had met him through mutual friends and he uh, in Chicago one night was driving me home. I was, I was, (laughs) I forgot about this part. I was like mourning the death of a friend of mine who it was his birthday and he had just died a few weeks earlier and I went out and yeah very, very upset. And I had gotten drunk, although that was not unusual for me at that time. And uh, Cliff was driving me home and he kept putting his hand down my shirt. And I kept telling him not to and to stop and kept doing it. And I remember we were driving through like a bad neighborhood of Chicago and I like wanted to jump out of the car, but I couldn't because we were like in a very dangerous neighborhood. And he dropped me off and peed in my alley and I was married at the time and I remember like being like so embarrassed and ashamed not telling my husband because I knew my husband at the time would would have you know blamed me for getting in the car with that guy even though this is someone I like knew previously so um I then Cliff texted me the next day he was like oh sorry about last night don't tell you know our mutual friend and then for years I like stayed friends with him because I was like, oh, that was weird, but he was just drunk or whatever, which now that I think about it, why was I letting him drive me home if he was drunk? I don't think he was drunk, but um, I, I don't know. I just like wrote it off as like something normal that happens. I don't know. That's so weird. And no, that, I, I think it's less weird than you think. Yeah, I just was like, I just excused it for some reason. And I guess I really did think it was my fault for some reason. Which is crazy. That's so crazy. And so I um, stayed friends with him because he worked with, you know, Odd Future and Tyler the Creator. And I'd want to go to, like, the Odd Future shows. So then 
I think I just kind of came to the slow realization like, oh, this guy's not a good person uh, because I was at a show at the Echo or Echoplex. I think it was a Danny Brown show and he was there and I remember just all of a sudden acting, like I think he got me a drink and I was acting very, like very out of the norm for me. Like I was being very sexual with people and I remember Cliff grabbing my butt a few times and me telling him to stop and he, you know, like he did it after I told him not to and um you know, that was a night, I believe, that I got roofied. And then a few months later, I got drugged um, completely unrelated at a, at a bar in Echo Park. And I went out with a friend and he like pointed out to me, he's like, this is not you. Like, how much have you had to drink? And I was like, I've only had like three glasses of wine. He's like, this is weird. So I realized that that night, that, that second night that I had been drugged. And then I started putting the pieces together about like the other times that I had been drugged. And I just realized, like, oh, shit, like, I, this person, like, a few of these other times that I was acting like that was around that person, and um, I can't have that person in my life because this is actually hurting my business, and anything that hurts Danger Village, I'm, like, I cut out immediately as soon as I realized. (laughs) Yes. So I was, like, this is hurting me, and this is hurting my business, and then I just kind of came to the realization, like, he was just, like, all the he's just a bad person and I couldn't be around him. But then I told years later, I, I mean, I don't know, like a year later or two years later, I told Judy from Motormouth and she had worked with him and, and I emailed her about my story and she was like, yeah, that's actually happened to like 20 other people, like worse things. Like he's done worse things to people that people had told her. And I was like, Oh man. And I had told my friend, Daniel Gill, who owns Forcefield PR. I told him about this Heathcliff story and he was like, Oh my God, like, why is that guy still in business? I'm like, I don't know. Judy says he's done this to like 20 other people, but worse, worse things. And so then last January, about a year ago, almost, um, Daniel texted me and he's like, you need to look at Amber Kaufman's Twitter. And I tweeted to hit back to him. Who's that? Cause I didn't know who she was. <laughs> and, uh, but then I was like, Oh, I should, I should check. Cause Daniel wouldn't just like, there's a reason he told me to do that. So I looked at it and she was tweeting about Heathcliff and I was like, Oh shit. Yeah. And so like I tweeted back and I'm like, yeah, he did that to me. Uh, and I, and I explained what I just explained to you and she ended up retweeting everything. And I was just like, well, it's out there, there." you know? Um, and you're going to like this part. I was, I was literally cleaning out my closets at that time when this happened. (laughs) (laughs) Like my hall closet. I was just looking at my hall closet the other day. I'm like, I need to clean this out again. It's been about a year. So like, so like this Twitter started blowing up and 20 minutes later, Heathcliff called me and, uh, after my tweets and I did not answer. And I was like, Oh no. Like I was talking to Judy, like I'm going to get sued. Cause this guy, no, he's like threatened to sue other people. And, um, she's like, no, there's too many people. And so we just sat there like, Basically watching Twitter populate, right? Yeah. And I was just so nervous and so nervous. And then like two or three hours later, Bethany Cosentino, Best Coast, tweeted something about it. And I was like, okay, all right, now people are going to believe it. And uh, the next morning, it just was like all over the place. And I was getting hit up by it for interviews from like Jezebel. Because I remember Judy and I were like, I hope like Jezebel picks up this story. (laughs) The true publicists in you. Yeah, right, right, right. I didn't, I didn't send it to anyone because, um, many reasons like people, that's not like a self promo thing that it doesn't work. 
like the only reason that story became such a big story is because it just was the right time, the right timing. Like if we had, like people think we've kind of been accused a bit of like, oh, well, they're publicists, so they made this story bigger. And I'm like, I wish I was that good of a publicist, but I'm not. Like to make like how that story spread like wildfire, you can't do that. That only happened because I was organic. So, um, yeah, then it just became huge, huge, huge. Um, I mean, we got interviewed by, like, New York Times and others. Uh, it was a big deal. And I think that it had to come out at that time. And I was hopeful that things would change. And hopefully so they do. I, I know that change is slow. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see. And I'll I'll make sure people listening have links to the article so you can hear kind of what happened and and have the context around it. But thank you, Beth, for sharing that. I, you know, it's such a, it's such a funny thing, like, because you don't want to talk about it when it's happened to you as a woman. But then at the same time, the more we do talk about it, the more other women who are hiding, and hiding the secret and having to keep the secret don't have to do that anymore. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, hundreds, I mean, the, the result of that was hundreds of people came to me with their stories that they've never shared. And so I became this receptacle for these stories, which was extremely hard. I mean, that was, yes. I didn't, I didn't sleep for a week. I mean, I'm not someone who ever takes sleeping pills, but finally I had to take like date NyQuil or something because I couldn't, I, it was horror. It was the horror. It was just terrible. And not just stories about Heathcliff, some horror stories about Heathcliff, but just people being like, I was raped when I was 16, you know, just like crazy stuff. And that just made, that really was eye-opening. And people were doing these interviews. I was trying to tell them, I'm like, this is not uncommon. And they wouldn't, they were like shocked. They're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, you know, the stats are one in three women are sexually assaulted. I'm like, I think it's more like nine out of 10. Like, it's like a lot. And like almost everyone I know has a story. I mean, only one person I talked to was like, that's nothing like that's ever happened to me. Um, and you found the unicorn. Yeah. I I think a big portion of that is that, um, I like, we don't define assault correctly. I didn't know that I was assaulted until I was doing an interview with billboard magazine. And I said something like, well, I was, you know, he just like grabbed me. And she's like, no, that's assault. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know. And like, we looked it up. My boyfriend looked it up and he's like, oh, okay, this is battery. This is assault. And I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. Unwanted, uh, physical, sexual, uh, you know, touching is assault Um, or battery, depending on what state you're in. And it's illegal. And this person should be in jail. But our laws are such that uh, because it happened to me too long ago, I can't do anything about it. And there's no uh, evidence, unfortunately. So um, this guy gets to walk free after, you know, ruining several people's lives. Not mine, but other people I know of are very, very uh, traumatized by him and what happened. But other things, too. But as far as, like, my business... You know, around the time that I stopped following Life or Death PR on Twitter and and cut Heathcliff out of my life, I had kind of a a mental, you know, talk with myself like, okay, I'm going to stop talking to Heathcliff. I'm going to cut Life or Death PR out of my life and all their, like, gross associates. Because to me, they were, like, cool. They were, like, they had, like, the, uh, like, hip, cool shit. 
And being associated with them meant that I could be cool and I could get ahead that way. And I had to make a decision to myself, like, I'm going to cut these people off. And maybe my business doesn't grow any bigger than it is, but that's okay with me because I don't want to continue to associate with people who are doing disgusting things. And um, there's something that happens in life when you decide to cut out negativity from your life. And when you do that, things get better for you. And I know that it's a really scary, hard thing. If you can get over that hurdle, you can see that there's a bigger world out there. Your your previous viewpoint was like looking through a keyhole. And once you get past those hurdles, it's like you're seeing like a vista from a mountaintop. And you realize like your life was consumed by, you know, negative or bad people or whatever that were taking up your attention. And now that you don't have that in your life anymore, you have so much more attention to give to good things that can, that can better your life. And, um, you know, I, I didn't just do it with, with Heathcliff or Life or Death PR. I did it with, across the board, anyone who was bringing me down or hurting me or jealous of me or just whatever. Anyone who, who would say, like, critical negative things to me. I just was like, I can't have this in my life anymore. And, and the more you do that, the easier it gets. Like, I went on a purge of Facebook. This is, I'm talking years ago. I went on a purge of Facebook and Twitter. Uh, anyone who would talk, who would say, like, negative things or complaining things, I stopped following them. And I realized after I did that, there was so much more I wasn't seeing because I was so consumed by this muck. And so by the time last year when the things with Amber uh, and Heathcliff, all that went down, I already was in the mindset that if people are going to judge me and not want to work with me because I spoke up about a sexual assault, then I don't want to work with them. I want to work with people who are supportive of this and making a better world. And I think that's, you know, the result of me speaking up, speaking my truth, speaking about sexual assault. You know, last year I had one of the best years or the best year for Danger Village I've ever had. I've had more clients come to me than ever before. I was able to raise my prices. I had one of my artists you know, was the biggest signing of the year because of the PR work I did for her. And not even the biggest signing, Bishop Briggs was not even the biggest signing of last year. She was the biggest signing of like several years for a new artist. It was a huge deal. And that was, you know, I think these things are connected. I think, yes, I probably uh, have lost a lot of contacts of men who avoid talking to me now or cross the street or don't want to make eye contact with me. But when that happens, I'm like, well, now I know. Well, like, now I know, like, what side you're on. You know, not that there needs to be sides, but, like, I just don't want to, I can't not say things because of fear of losing work. I can't not speak up for what I think is right because I think that people will judge me because it's doing what's right is not always or hardly ever doing what's easy. It's easy to stay silent. But it's difficult. It's so yes. difficult to speak up, you know? Oh, I'm glad you're still there. I just talked yes. for so long. <laughs> no, I'm still here. And and I totally get what you're saying. I think, um, you know, I'm so 
out about talking about poop and talking about shit and how that's what I talk about with a lot of my clients. Basically digestive distress in a lot of ways. Yeah. But it's interesting that you share this story because I had an incident when I was at my worst where in my, what was it, like early, mid-20s, where I literally, my digestive system was so broken, I shit my pants on a plane headed back to New York. Like I had worked all week in Detroit and, you know, we'll spare everyone the details and regular listeners have probably heard this story. But I, like that was the outer limits of shame for me. Like I started writing about it probably like only about five years ago or so. It was locked away. I couldn't even really remember a ton of the details because I think I had just like, all right, we're going to pack that up in a black box and we're going to kick it to the middle of the ocean and never see that again. Right. And what was funny with my practice is without having that be out in the world, like literally, I was the only one who knew about that. And I guess the people on the plane, but they were probably trying to not remember me either. In the first couple of years of my practice, clients were coming to me and they were telling me what's, we were doing health history and we would get to like, how's your digestion? And there'd usually be some sort of silence and uncomfortableness. And I'd find out it was pretty bad, like what they like symptoms they were dealing with. And they had no idea that this was my experience too. Like, I think I just kind of like, I talked to people about digestion and kept it really starchy and buttoned up. And over and over and over, I was getting these clients and then describing the shame. I shit my pants at my kid's recital. I, you know, I shit my pants here. I've been constipated for 30 years. Like all of these like horrible symptoms to be dealing with. And so I was just attracting it. Even though I wasn't talking about it, I was attracting it. Mm -hmm. And when I came out of the closet about it and, you know, it took me having a glass of wine or two with a bunch of girlfriends that I've known since grade school. And the topic of shitting your pants came up. And one by one, like every single one of my girlfriends was talking about, maybe not every single one, but a, a good percentage of the room had a story to share. And, you know, a lot of them were stomach flus, so kind of one off. And I was like, yeah, this has happened twice for me and partly my own fault here. And after that night, I was like wait a minute, a bunch of my girlfriends have experienced this. A bunch of my clients have experienced this. Why the fuck are we not talking about this? Right. And right. like that was sort of the birth of the poo whisperer, as, as my husband Craig calls it, because now we go anywhere. I can be at a party. And, you know, I remember we were at like a dinner at someone's house one night. And like within about 15 minutes of being there, someone was telling me about their colostomy bag. Craig's like, I don't know what you do, but people just find you and have to tell you these things and so he usually just makes a beeline but I think like it's there like whether we're we're saying it or not it's out there right yeah yeah and like the more open and honest you are with that the more able you are to help other people because shame is like not a it, it's not a necessary or helpful feeling it's shame is only something that keeps us silent. I don't know if there's anything about shame that like biologically is like important. I, I think that I, I really don't know like if, if there is or isn't, but like to me, um, I remember like when I moved out here to California and I was going, or I just got divorced. And I remember my friend Neil saying to me, 
don't let anyone shame you ever again, ever again. And that was kind of like our mantra of like, never let anyone shame you again. And then years later, I discovered Brene Brown and she talks about shame and, um, and how it's a, it's, it's a useless thing. And, um, shame's a lot like fear, you know, like you don't, you're, you're afraid of speaking up because you're afraid of people judging you. But if you're afraid, if you're able to get through that and speak about your experiences, the shame goes away. Uh, I've had so many people come to me with like shameful things or crazy things. They think I'm going to judge them for. And when I don't, they're like, Oh, okay. Like nothing, hardly anything phases me anymore. And, and, <laughs> You've I mean, seen it all. <laughs> not, I haven't seen it all, but I, I feel like I've seen enough that like nothing would surprise me at this point. Like, and in terms of like shitting yourself on the plane or like whatever, I'm just like, yeah, okay, that happened. You know? Yep. <laughs> like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, I think I, you don't necessarily want to go like telling the stories on like sometimes people on Facebook are very like, over telly and that's more like attention getting I think but like when you're able to like share your stories in a group of friends or to a trusted friend that helps you know that helps it helps everyone it helps you but it helps them too so yeah I think that's cool about the poop whisperer (laughs) (laughs) it was there was so much agony and like because I came from a culture, like my first job out of college was at PricewaterhouseCoopers. And I remember it was right after Coopers and Librand and Pricewaterhouse had merged. And the joke always was, you know, they didn't know what to do with the firm because like the Coopers people didn't wear any underwear and the Pricewaterhouse people starched them. And I had come from, I had interned for Pricewaterhouse. And so it was like this really starchy definition of what professionalism was Mm -hmm. you know even at first I always use the term bowel movement and now when I talk to clients it's like tell me about your poop we're gonna you know like tell me about your period tell me about your poop like (laughs) you know it was always so clinical and it like closed people up it just it changed the whole energy of the conversation and when I realized like wait a minute if I just stop worrying about trying to sound like a doctor or an accountant or whatever this like hybrid of starchiness and inflexibility I'm coming from like if I just put that aside and really talk to people like that's where the real change happens yeah I I totally get that I know like I feel the same way like when I'm if I'm you know if I'm at the doctor or whatever and I'm like uh bowel movement's not a word I grew up with and uh (laughs) I actually remember the first time I heard it was people, because my initials are BM. And people, oh, but, no. I, I had never heard that. People were, like, making fun of me. And they're like, you're BM. You're BM. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. And then they said bowel movement. And I was like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> you know, I think we said poop in my house. I mean, we're not, like, a totally open family. But, like, forgot what I – we just, like, go to the bathroom or whatever. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think that I'm actually reading a book right now called Heal Your Mind, and it, it's about how, like, your mental state is connected to your health and, like, kind of, like, if you're feeling this, like, what you're feeling. It's, um, I have it here. It's Mona Lisa Schultz and Louise Hay. So it's a it's a Hay House book. The one thing for me is because I have, I'm constipated, like, constantly, and this book said, like, you know, and I, and I drink, like, Senna tea, and lately I've taken charcoal and all these different things, and... I just want like a regular poo every day. And it's just like, 
it's like all or nothing, which is so, so frustrating. But what this book is telling me is like, it's related to self-esteem. Like, uh, what, you know, if you're holding, if you're constipated or digestive problems, often self-esteem. So that's like, I'm really working on that this year. It's just like really like loving myself and working on my self-esteem to get better poop. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's something to it. I mean, you have to look at it from the functional perspective on one hand, but then I think the path that you're taking is so cool and looking at it like on a metaphysical level as well. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that gets us to the right self-inquiry that we need to do to kind of free things up, so to speak. So that sounds like an awesome, an an awesome path to go down because we can't, as much as we try and as much as research tries to carve out like, you know, the digestive system works this way because of this, you know, where it interfaces with the nervous system and causes peristaltis and, you know, like this really like physical piece. I mean, if we just back back up from it and maybe this is going to be you know, blasphemous in my world. Like, how do we really separate our biology from our belief completely? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to take that into consideration. You know, I've, I've certainly in my years have seen some, some stuff I can't fully explain from a functional basis. Mm-hmm. But I think people tend to think, and I always use this analogy, like you can eat a dump truck full of kale, but that's not going to save you if your marriage is falling apart or your job is falling apart or your house burned down. Like no amount of green juice is going to do it. You know, you really have to look at your life as a whole and, you know, how your body fits into that as well. Yeah, I think, is that like what holistic medicine is? Is it like... Or is that, is that like looking at your body as a whole or is that just a totally different word? I think, I don't know what the, the strict defined definition, and I feel like this is where doctors and clinicians get very, very persnickety about these things. But yeah, I mean, essentially, it, and integrative health as well. And functional medicine are really about, you know, looking at the person as a human being in front of you, not just a pile of symptoms. Because like when you go to a conventional doctor, sometimes they're kind of they're looking at their chart and they're they're talking about like, well, you're this symptom and that symptom. All right, you're this combination of symptoms. So that must mean this. Mm-hmm. Whereas the holistic, integrative, functional doctors are looking at like, OK, who are you as a person? What's your health history been? What are you doing in terms of I use an acronym DRESS, which is, you know, diet and hydration, rest and relaxation exercise and movement, stress management, and social relationships mm-hmm. as kind of the foundational pillars that we need to be considering. And if those are off, then it's kind of like building a house on jello, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where like that community, that, that part of the medical spectrum sort of dwell as well. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting more and more into just working on my health connected to how I think about my health. So I'm reading also, well, it's a book called Money and the Law of Attraction, but they talk about how you attract what you want by your thoughts. And you also can attract what you don't want by your thoughts. So for example, this summer I gained some weight and I really 
was uh, fearful. Like, I don't want to become obese. obese. I really want to lose weight. Because I used to be, like, 200 pounds, and I've since lost weight. And so I had a lot of fear of, like, getting back there. And I was like, I don't want to gain weight. I don't want to gain weight. And I kept gaining weight. And I realized through reading this book that I was thinking, I was focusing so much on what I didn't want that I was attracting that. And as soon as I changed my, and this, this may sound like really out there, but like as soon as I changed my thinking to, I want to lose weight, I want to be healthy, I was able to lose weight really quickly. And it just was a matter of thinking about what I did want rather than what I didn't want. And so now I'm really focusing on, um, the same thing happened like, where I, I was like, I don't want to get sick, I don't want to get sick, I don't want to get sick, and then I got sick because I was thinking about it so much. So now I'm trying to really focus on um, I'm perfect, like thinking to myself, I am very healthy, I'm in perfect health. That's what I always say to myself. And like over Christmas, like my boyfriend was sick and his dad was sick and everyone got sick and was on a plane, and I, I kept just repeating that to myself and I stayed healthy. So um, I'm just really working on like mentally uh saying things to myself, positive affirmations to, um, to just keep myself very healthy, which I know sounds like kind of very like hippy dippy or something. I mean, I, in my, in my, I hear myself saying this stuff and I'm kind of like, who are you? <laughs> I'm not <laughs> judging. I'm not judging. It's just like, I'm just realizing like how much your mind and body and spirit are all connected. And I think when your body, when you're sick, um, or you know something's wrong. It's your your body's like telling you something else is wrong. I think you need to look at the whole the whole side the whole spectrum of it. Yeah, I mean, really using symptoms as breadcrumbs on the trail, right? Like, mm-hmm. and really kind of recognizing. And when you're experiencing symptoms, where a lot of people immediately go is, "I just want this to stop. I want this." headache to stop. I want this stomach ache. I want this constipation to stop. I want this diarrhea to stop. Whatever it is, I just want it to stop. And all the energy is like, I just want it to stop. But if we can, and as someone that meditates, both of us, you know, being able to step back from that and sort of like go, okay, I'm having all these thoughts about this symptom. And of course, this symptom is uncomfortable. But what is the symptom about? What is it telling me? You know, what can I learn about it? What, what can I learn about myself through it? And mm-hmm. asking those kind of questions are really important. And it sounds like that's, that's kind of how you're spending your energy now and, and looking at it differently. And I, A plus, Beth. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to work on this year, um, really doing what you just said. Like, why do I feel the craving to eat more food or why do I like when it, when I'm not hungry, like what or, or drink or whatever it is, you know, or actually what I'm really working on now is why do I feel the craving to pick up my phone every pause in the day, you know, even going to the bathroom or walking down the street. Like, why do I need to look at my phone, look at Twitter or my email or whatever, ever instead of just like being in the moment. And I'm trying to really think about like just being more in the moment instead of being, you know, like I said, I get angry at people instead of like distracting myself. Why don't I just like work through that irritation or work through that anger? And instead of like the addiction to my, my devices or food or whatever. Ah, yeah. It's a good place to go and explore. 
it's really cool that you're doing that. And I, I think one of the other questions I had for you, because I was thinking about, I don't work in PR. And, you know, what I do, like, I have appointments with people, and it's one-on-one, and it's very scheduled. When I was thinking about questions, one of them that I had for you was kind of on being versus doing. And how do you juggle that with, like, not only, I have enough trouble watching my own Twitter and my own Facebook account on a regular basis. I can't imagine having to do that for yourself, your business, and then also, in some way, your clients as well. Mm-hmm. How do you juggle being versus doing? Um, I have clear boundaries of this is work time. These are the work hours. And then now this is yoga time. And now this is cleaning my house time or this is relaxation time. And um, I have to be pretty strict about it because otherwise it's just nonstop. And not just my job, but a lot of people in the music industry, it's nonstop. I don't subscribe to that because I I am better for my clients when I am clear mentally, when I feel good, you know, when I'm well rested, you know, a lot of times I I used to get more shit for not going to shows more often. And it's actually something I'm trying, I want to go to more shows this year, but um, you know, I'm better for my clients when I'm not, when I'm not sleepy the next day, because if I'm out till a show to midnight and I don't go to sleep till one, and I only get seven hours of sleep. I'm not as good. I'm not as good at my job. Yeah, I just think you have to disconnect at some point. And if there is something that needs to be done, you know, you have your task list for the day and you prioritize it. Like you can number it like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Like these are the important things and this is the order of importance. And if your top priorities didn't get done, then you can spend an hour or two at night doing that, which is what I often do. Like if I'm not going out to a show or dinner, I often will spend one to two hours at night catching up on emails, but that's like my specific, okay, I'm going to catch up on emails right now instead of like just constantly having this thing hanging over my head. Like I'm at the grocery store, like, Oh, I got to email that person back. Like, it's like, Setting those t- those boundaries, I think, is probably the most important thing to keep saying. Got it. And Beth, you naturally slid over to one of my champagne questions that I like to ask all my guests. And it was, how do you organize and manage your task lists on a day-to-day basis? Oh. Um, so I am old school. I have a uh, sticky uh, Post-it notepad. And I write at the top of it, I say Tuesday, and I write the tasks down and, and number them. And then I will prioritize them. Then I delegate as much as possible. You know, I have nice. assistants or interns helping me. And yes, I, I'm very uh, old school pen and paper about that, just looking at it. I don't use like a notepad on my screen, but I'm not a millennial, so I don't know how they do it. Got it. Got it. And I know you've mentioned a few books while we were talking today. And I'll make sure people have notes to those. But what's the most inspiring or useful book you've ever read? Um, Ever is such a big... (laughs) I know. But I can't find it for some reason. I'm looking around my house right now for it. But the one that really recently really changed my life was The Power of Now. And um, 
I can't I can't think of who wrote it right now. It's um that guy. <laughs> <laughs> that guy. I can look it up. That's not a big deal. I think I can picture the cover, but I can't picture the name on it myself. It's blue. The cover's blue, and I don't know why I can't find it. But um, the power of now, I'm trying to think of what it, the main thing that changed me was that it was separating yourself from your thoughts. So one of my yoga teachers used to say, you are not the victim of your thoughts. And I, up until that point, like when I picked up this book, my thoughts were just really attacking me. Like I almost like in my mind, it's like my thoughts were like this shadow that had a sword or a knife and was like stabbing me. I mean, it was like, you're not good enough. You're fat. No one will ever truly love you. Um, I call it the itty bitty shitty committee. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly it. It's It's like these thoughts that just get you, you know, they won't stop, you know? Uh, Sorry, what were you going to say? No, no, I was just going to say I named it the itty bitty shitty committee because sometimes it's it's just as noisy as you're describing. And it kind of reminds me of like that old, like the old dudes at the British House of Parliament where they all kind of like scream each other and bang gavels and go bananas. Yes. Yeah. And even though I was going to yoga and doing meditation and just all this stuff, I could not break free of um, of believing them, of believing those thoughts. And then I read The Power of Now, and to be honest, I've only read a couple chapters. Like, I didn't even finish it because it just changed my life so much uh, because I realized that those thoughts were not me. That's not me. Um, those are just the ego or just whatever you want to call it, just coming in to try to bring you down. And so when I was able to kind of mentally put it in a bubble or put it aside and get back to who I truly was, it really was transformative. Cause like up until that point I was like, I was allowing those thoughts to become what I believed about myself. And that would manifest itself in, I would attack my boyfriend, like being like, you're never going to love me because my thoughts were telling like no one will ever love me, you know? And so like I was able to just like my relationships with people improved because I was able to not believe those things about myself. And again, it's like daily, it's a daily process of, because uh, I've had them 30, I've had 34 years of believing this about myself. And it's only been six or seven months where I started realizing that I'm separate from that. But yeah, it was really, really an amazing book. Awesome. Uh, awesome. And I, if that's something that resonated so strongly for you, Another book that you might really dig is The Untethered Soul. And I can't remember the guy who wrote that either. So I have that here. I just haven't read it yet. Yeah. If if that's like your wheelhouse of what you find inspiring, you'll probably dig that too. Cool. Yeah, I have The Untethered Soul right here. It's by Michael A. Singer. There we go. Nice find. Okay, I'm putting it out. I don't know where the power of now went. Maybe I lent it to <laughs> you someone. You probably loaned it to someone. Yeah. <laughs> it will come back to me. There's another book, funnily enough, that changed my life. I don't I don't think it would have quite the same effect on everyone, but it was... Do you know who Bethany Frankel is? She, I know a, who she is. She's one of the Real Housewives, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So when I was in Chicago, I was in this terrible, abusive marriage, and I uh, was obsessed with uh, escapism through watching Real Housewives of various cities. And <laughs> Bethany was my favorite. And uh, she had a book called uh, A Place of Yes. 
And it's so funny to me that this is what triggered me changing my life. But it was one of the, another one of those books where I only read a couple chapters and it just like changed my life so much that I put it down and never picked it up again. But um, so her, her book, A Place of Yes, is just basically about uh, saying yes to opportunities and, you know, not, you know, not immediately saying no to things, which I think a lot of people do. But what this is just a personal story. I don't know if this is going to resonate with anyone else. But what uh, happened was one of her chapters was about relationships. I almost uh, skipped it because I was like, oh, I, well, I'm married. I'm fine. I don't need to um, read this chapter. But I read it, and she described being in this marriage where she was unhappy, but she thought that no one else would ever love her, and it just it wasn't the right fit. And whatever it was, it just clicked for me. And I had this, like, my friend Neil calls it a come-to-Jesus moment, but I had this come-to-Jesus moment where I was like, oh my God, I've been waiting for something to end my marriage, but I need to be the one to end my marriage. And it just was like the most, one of those revelatory moment in my life. And uh, I was like up all night just being like, oh my God, I've been waiting for like him to leave me or what, something. And uh, I called my one of my best friends the next day and I was like, uh, I need to leave my husband and move to California. And she was like, okay, when do you want to go? <laughs> you know, she was like, okay, I'll drive you. And, uh, and I took, you know, several months to do it, uh, about six months maybe of really being like, is this the right thing? And through that time I was like, no, I need to leave. I need to leave. I'm unhappy. And it wasn't until I got out to California and I was safe that I was really able to be like, oh my gosh, that was an abusive marriage. That was very, very dangerous for me to be there. Cause I couldn't, my mind couldn't grasp what was going on. Cause you don't you're like, with, you know, like especially gaslight. when you're in it too. Yeah. I like, like my family was like, what, why are you leaving? And I was like, I don't know. I just have to go. And now in hindsight through years of therapy, I can be like, oh yes, that was abusive. <laughs> but like, it didn't know at the time. I just knew I had to go. But yeah, it, it's like, I just went on for a very long time about that. But like, <laughs> but like that book, I, I don't know if everyone else would have that experience, but that's like the book that really changed my life. Uh, just one of those moments. And it sounds like lightning sort of striking the top of your head as you're reading this book. Yeah. And it, yeah, it, it was, it was like, it was like the heavens parted and a light shone down upon me and I could like see it was crazy. What an amazing story and how like, like that intuitive hit was so strong. Like you read it and you're like, I just picture you sort of closing the book and kind of thinking, oh, shit, this is what I got to do now. That's <laughs> yeah. exactly, exactly what happened. And I, I never picked up the book again until a few years later. And I picked it up and I started reading it. And I was like, I don't really like this. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it was, it was what you needed in that moment. Yeah, it was. And it's just like, I don't know how to translate that to advice, but like sometimes... I guess sometimes things hit you at the right time. Like you are, you, you see what you're meant to see at the time you're meant to see it. Like I have so many books, like for example, like the untethered soul. I can't remember when I bought that probably three years ago, but now I'll probably pick it up and resonate with it more than if I had tried to read it three years ago. Same with power of now. Like I had the power of now for years before I picked it up and read it. Yeah. I go through that same dance with books. Like sometimes we have to date a little before we make out. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) 
you're not always able to to hear the messages that you need to hear. Like you're not always prepared for it. And then um, then when you are, like they can really strike. But you just gotta like keep paying attention. And I think that's probably the tool that you were you were looking for, like yeah. a few you know a few seconds ago. Like it's just being open to the message, you know, mm-hmm. not like you got to that chapter on marriage, right, or relationships, mm-hmm. and you could have just been like, I don't need to read this, mm-hmm. but like going into those things that we feel that kind of micro resistance about sometimes are exactly what turns the key in the lock for us. Mm-hmm. So, right. I, so I mean, I think I think the message in all that is staying open, right. Yeah, absolutely. Staying open, being, yeah, keeping yourself aware. That's the same thing, open. Yeah. And so, Beth, when you need inspiration, to what or to where do you go? And this can be a work of art, a place, a book, whatever stokes you. Oh, anything in nature, like, is, I'm fortunate enough to live in Los Angeles, and there's, like, Griffith Park, hiking trails there. Anything where I can see the ocean. So I just, um, I love going to the ocean and just walking on the beach for an hour. And no matter what, it's always beautiful. Like no matter what time of day it is, but particularly around sunset. And that just clears my head and gives me inspiration. Or I will go on a long drive. I like like going on like a four-hour car trip and just listening to music or just not even listening and just thinking out my thoughts. Nice. Or listening to podcasts, maybe. Wink, wink. <laughs> I like to podcasts, but sometimes podcasts take a little too much, like, thinking, and I want to just, like... I'm kidding. <laughs> and, Beth, I know you went on your feminist rant earlier. I have a few questions about being a modern woman for you. Sure. How would you define being a modern woman? I think being a modern woman is just being whoever you are, in whatever form that takes, as long as it's true to who you are. And for example, I, a few years ago, one of my uh, New Year's resolutions was I was going to get really good at wearing makeup because I've never been particularly into it. And it took me the whole year. And finally on New Year's Eve, the following, you know, New Year's Eve, I went to Nordstrom's, I got my makeup done, spent $300 on makeup. And uh, I just, I tried to do it for like a year you know, tried to put on the foundation and whatever the stuff is. And finally, I just was like, like last year, I was like, you know what? I'm not into makeup. I don't want to do more than like a quick coat of mascara as I'm driving to a meeting. And that's okay. I don't have to be good at makeup. That's what kind of woman I am. But also, there's a lot of people who really like doing makeup, which is not something I realized, but I'm in this women's comedy group and there was a whole thread like I about women who like like to get up and put on makeup and they enjoy doing it and that's okay for them like that's why I don't judge Kim Kardashian because like they like putting on makeup they like looking like that and that's the kind of woman they are so I personally think that Kim Kardashian is also a modern woman even though I know she gets a lot of criticism for exactly for wearing a lot of makeup and being very like uh process looking but I think just be who you want to be. Do what you want to do. And if you want to dress and show cleavage, that's totally fine. And if you don't want to and never wear a dress, that's totally fine too. Just just whatever, like femininity, being a woman can be whatever it just means to you personally, as long as you are being true to what you feel like and what makes you feel good. 
Got it. And if we could dial in on two points, what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? Um, <laughs> just, just one thing. I can't pick just one thing. I guess I'll, I'll go with, um, I would like to see modern women give more of a shit about um, supporting other women and believing, believing women when they say they were abused or assaulted. Because I feel like that's something that a lot of women don't believe. For example, um, our country just elected uh, a president who has been on trial for rape three times and verbally said things about sexually assaulting women. And, and a lot of women voted for him because they, I, don't, I don't know if they didn't believe it or they didn't think it was like that big of a deal or whatever. I would really like to see people care about uh, women who speak up about being assaulted. Yes, because it's, it's hard enough to be heard by men. Yes. So I think if, if we can be supporting each other, that would be hugely impactful in the world. Yes, absolutely. And conversely, what would you like to see modern women give less of a shit about? I would like to see modern women give less of a shit about, I mean, it goes along with what I said before, but just... I figured. Changing who they are to fit a person, like someone else's idea of who they should be. Like, I think a lot of people are very concerned about um, fitting into a stereotype or fitting into um, what a successful woman should be, like leaning in or whatever. Like, you like you can be powerful and still be quiet. Like, you don't need – no, I don't, I don't want to, like – I don't – want to run down Sheryl Sandberg or anything like leaning in is great, but like you also don't need to be a bitch or be loud to be powerful and strong. And I think, uh, I would like everyone to just care less about what someone else tells them to do and just think more about how they personally can, can work on their strengths to be the best you, you can be. And that's what the key to success is. Right on. Right on, Beth. And what do you most want La Vital Corsalon listeners to know? <laughs> I'm trying to think of something different than what I just said. <laughs> um, what I want, most want your listeners to know is um, you listening, you, the listener, I'm speaking to you now, is that you are a beautiful, worthwhile person and you have unique qualities that are assets to the world. And you have a very unique ability that only you can bring to make the world a better place. And I would like you to believe that about yourself and, um, you know, do what you can to bring that out into the world. Thank you, Beth. And if women want to learn more about you and your work or connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I'm on Twitter at Danger Village. That's where my opinions go. And also <laughs> my, uh, I tweet about my bands a lot. So if you see me tweeting about a band on Twitter, that is one of my clients that you should know about. All my clients are handpicked and uh, I personally love. And then, uh, yeah, 
I have a dangervillage.com where you can also learn about my clients, but that is not my personal opinions about things. It's just my clients are on there. Just the work stuff. Yeah. Beth, I can't thank you enough for being here. And I also have to wonder, like, were we split from the same egg at some point? Like, are you... <laughs> the more you talk, the more I'm like, I just want Beth to be my friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's so... It's so funny. Uh, I... When Craig told me about what you did, I was like, I want to, I want to know her. <laughs> <laughs> well, it all worked out and we smashed into each other in the lobby and we, we made today possible. But I wish you all the best. I hope you have a radically successful next 10 years. And again, with all my heart, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I, I'm, I'm really glad I was able to do this and it was a delight. Hey, this is Kara again. Thanks so much for tuning in. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over at levitalcoresalon.com. That's L-E, vital, V-I-T-A-L, core, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. New shows will be up on the second and fourth Wednesdays of every month. And if you've been listening and wondering what on earth it would feel like to work together on your brand new health and lifestyle strategy, let's connect. The best way to do that is to go to the website I just gave you and click contact. Or drop me an email at cara at vitalcorewellness.com. Before I bounce, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to my producer Craig Snyder and to Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone for writing and the High Dials for performing my most excellent theme song. And don't forget, everyone, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let burnout or bullshit slow you down. Mm -hmm.